This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What's up, Elevate? Whoa, wow, that was, we're gonna, we're gonna put a little more elbow grease into that. You ready? We're here for one purpose. We live and our lives exist for one purpose. Are you ready? Elevate! Jesus! Elevate! Jesus! Awesome. Okay, I want you guys to hear how they did it one more time. Elevate! Jesus! Are you ready to live up to that? Yeah? Yeah? You ready? All right. Elevate! Jesus! All right, all together. Elevate! Jesus! Thank you, Lord. You are worthy of all of our praise. You guys did awesome. Man. There's cars driving by that just got startled. We are in week four of one of my probably new favorite series of all time. We are studying God himself, not just what he has done or his people, but we are studying his very attributes. And it's so important. I'm opening every week with this, but it centers us to the purpose. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If I always have a conversation with you and say, hey, what do you think about God? The things that come into your mind and come into your heart, those are the very most important things about who you are. Because what you believe about God will order your thoughts, your words, your actions, and even the very purpose and direction of your life. And guess what? The higher our view is of God, the greater our worship will be. The more we will want to be at his feet, the more we want to rejoice and sing his praises. And the higher our view is of God, the smaller our view of our self becomes. The higher our view is of him being ruler, the smaller our view of ourselves being in charge of anything becomes. And so it's a little bit of an uncomfortable series. We've talked about his self-existence, that he is all creator, that he is all powerful, that he is all knowing And that because of those things, he has the right to be all sovereign, the ruler of everything. And tonight we're going to talk about his omnipresence, that he is everywhere, or he is everywhere fully present. Maybe, like me, you've had some questions about God. Maybe you thought to yourself, well, if I can't see God, how can I believe in him? If I can't know that he's there, how can... How can I have a relationship with him? I've got a fun little picture. Are you ready for an awe? This is the really cute back of my head at three years old. Here we go. Oh, look at that curly hair. What a mess. Now, I am a toddler. I'm probably three. And it looks like something has caught my attention. And look at that strut. I have purpose. I am headed somewhere, right? And I can tell you that in that moment that I'm headed somewhere, I am like tunnel visioned and I am pretty sure I am by myself. But you know what? If, if I had the opportunity to back out of my tunnel vision 
and back up just a little bit further, I would have seen what this picture reveals, that I'm not alone. That's the shadow of my dad right there. The whole time that I'm headed off some way, I have never left his supervision, his care. I've never left his presence. And I think many times we'll get so tunnel visioned in our lives and focused on the next problem and the next thing or what's going to happen today that I think we need a perspective change to zoom out a little bit and realize that we have never left the presence of our Heavenly Father who is watching over us, caring for us, loving us, and guiding us. Psalm 139 would be a perfect psalm that if you wanted to sit down and memorize one chapter of the Bible, this psalm would just speak volumes for the rest of your life. Psalm 139, we're going to read verses 7 through 10. They're so simple and beautiful. And it opens with a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is omni, which means all, and present, which means being in a certain place. He is everywhere, all of him at the same time. And I love how David, when he was writing Psalm 139, look at this. It's almost like he's talking about a three-dimensional compass, a compass that's standing upright. He talks about heaven that is above the earth, that is the height of heights. God is there. And then he talks about the place of the dead, Sheol, and he is there. And then he talks about the morning. The morning where the sun rises, that is as far to the east as you can go, he's there. And then he talks about settling in the sea, which to them in Palestine, Israel, would be west. And so you have this three-dimensional compass, and no matter where you go, David says, you can't escape his presence. He is everywhere present. And he understood that everywhere that David himself, everywhere that you and I would be, God is actively with us guiding us and caring for us. Who is like our God? There is nowhere that we can go to escape him. Think about Jonah. Here's a great idea. I'm going to hop on a boat and cross the ocean as far as man has ever explored. And he's saying this about a God who says in Isaiah, I walk upon the waves. I am the creator. I told the sea where to stop. And he's going to try to get away from God. How'd that work out for him? Jeremiah 23, verse 23 says, I, Am I a God at hand? Am I present? Declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him? So as we're look, considering this idea of God's presence being everywhere, I want to debunk a myth. Maybe you have conceived God as like this unseen ether, like a gas in a room that's just sort of spread out across the universe, Right? And I want to debunk that. That can't be true for two reasons. Because one, if that is true, then if there is boundaries of the universe, then suddenly God is no longer infinite. The universe does not contain God like a room would contain a gas. First Kings 8.27 at the temple dedication, Solomon says in all of his wisdom, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And secondly, if God was to be spread out, that meant that would mean that 
All of God is in no one particular place. You'd have just a small percentage here and you have a small percentage there. But no, our God, all of who God is, is currently present at every point in the universe simultaneously. Who is like our God? He doesn't have to say, hold on with that prayer. I'm going to get back to you. Something a little bit more important than you is happening over here. No, he is present, caring for you, guiding you. That is so amazing. So here's four places that God occupies. Are you ready for a bit of a a roller coaster? I'm so excited. Number one, he is present in the heavens. Psalm 123.1 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Enthroned in the heavens. I love the one verse that says that the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. But I want to take a look at the vision that God gave John. And we're going to take just just a small scene of what it means for God to be in the heavens. And I want you to turn on your imagination. Engage your creativity. Look through the eyes of your mind and begin to grab some of these images and grab the weightiness of what you're looking at. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. You ready for this? Ah! After this, which means there's stuff to read before this, go do that on your own. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So you'll have to keep reading after this as well. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, which is a reddish stone. And carnelian, which is a glassy orange-colored stone. And around the throne was a rainbow bursting with color that had the appearance of an emerald, glassy green gemstone. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They take off their crowns and they cast them before his throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. John is just grasping for words in his own language to try to describe something that is so unearthly to us. Everything that he describes about heaven is shocking and jarring to the human senses. Consider it. There's bursts of lightning. There's 
tons of color. I always think of the throne room as being like all white and gold, but he describes color everywhere. It's like the producers from Guardian of the Galaxies 2 got in, in on decorating the throne room. There's color everywhere. There's peals of thunder. There's fire and lightning coming from everywhere. And there's three kinds of beings in this throne room. There are the 24 elders representing all earthly authority. And they're sitting on their thrones of power. Then there's these strange spiritual beings looking like torches of fire hovering over the floor. And then there are these bizarre archetype terrifying creatures in the airspace above John's head. I don't know about you, but maybe you're thinking, I wonder what all this means. I wish someone would interpret this for me. And I want to say this, Elevate. Please hear me so clearly. John's priority is not for us to dissect everything we just read. His priority is for us to align ourselves with the same focus, the same attention. All of these creatures are not focused on each other. Why should we be focused on them? Every head in the room is all turned in the same direction, overshadowing them at center stage with all of their love and passion directed in the same direction towards the sovereign of all creation is sitting there before them. And all the glory of the elders, all the mystery of the spirits, and all the worship of these creatures is all directed at he who sits on the throne. That he who is the holy of holies. This is our God. The purpose of this vision isn't for us to see how mysterious heaven is. It's for us to recognize that the purpose of heaven is to exalt, to glorify, and to point all attention to the crowning jewel of heaven. And that is Yahweh Almighty, King of Kings, Holiness himself. God's presence fills the heavens. The second place that he is present is on earth. God is above our plane of existence. The fancy word for that is that he is transcendent. He is outside of time and space. He's limitless and he's separate from us, but he also hasn't wound up the universe like a clock and then set back to watch it unfold. He's also a God who's present. Isaiah had a really similar vision to what John had. And if you look in Isaiah 6, 3, you see these, again, these angels, and they're singing 24 hours a day, if there's hours in the day, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Get this, the whole earth is full of his glory. So here is in heaven, and they're singing about how his presence fills the earth. Do you all remember that story? about Rahab and the two spies of Joshua. So just to catch you up, before Joshua is going to lead Israel over the Jordan River to take the promised land, before Moses died, before they traveled in the wilderness for 40 years, before they were at Mount Sinai and God gave them the law, before they walked through the Red Sea, before the 10 plagues, before all of this went on, you have to understand something about their culture that they're living in. In their culture, every city or nation had its own god or gods. 
and they would plead to those gods for fertility and good crops and weather and victory in battle. And one of the things that was always consistent was, if your city beat my city, that meant your God was greater than my God. Are you following me? And if mine beat theirs, then that meant my gods are greater than their gods every time in battle. And you have to imagine that Joshua sent these spies to check out the immovable object between them and God's promises, and it was the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho had these enormous walls, and it was terrifying. And so these spies snuck in to check out how many guards they had and soldiers and how strong the walls really really were, and they needed some place to hide. And this woman, Rahab, who operated as a prostitute, gave them some place to hide on the top of her roof. And Rahab says something really profound. Now let's back up in time, back when they were still in Egypt. Imagine the Egyptians' view of this God of the Hebrews. How weak and puny must this God be that would let its people be subjected and enslaved by the Egyptians? And Egypt is a world power. How great and powerful must the Egyptian gods be? This God of the Hebrews didn't even have a name yet. Moses hasn't come back with the name of Yahweh. They just referred to as this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whoever they were. And so whenever God comes to bring his people out, God rolls up his sleeves to show his power. Listen to this. This is Exodus 9. Moses is talking to Pharaoh on behalf of God, and this is God speaking, saying, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For this purpose, I have raised you up. You as in Egypt, I made it. I, God, made it a superpower because of what I'm about to do. You, dude in the crown, Pharaoh, I put you on that throne for a reason. Why? I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And what did God do? He brought these plagues. But he brought very specific plagues. Consider the Nile that turned to blood as a plague directly against Kenum and Happy. Not Happy, no more. They have these gods of the Nile, and God turns their life source into blood. There's Heket, which is the goddess of birth that comes into the form of a frog, and God sends frogs that they can't get rid of. There's Hathor and Apis, which are the mother goddess with cow horns and the bull god, and God sends disease on their cattle. There's Sekhmet and Imhotep and Isis, which are related to sickness, health, and medicine, and God sends boils on people's skin. There's Newt and Set, which are the, the goddess and the god of the sky and desert storms, and God sends hail. There's Seth, the god of crops, and God sends locusts. There's Ra, Aten, and Atum, all sun gods, and God sends darkness. Think about that. God's like, oh, this sun? I hope no one gets mad at me. <laughs> There's nobody up here but me. You think I can't block out your sun? I breathe out galaxies. There's Osiris, the god of life and death, and Isis, the goddess of life, and God brings a plague of death on the firstborn of every house. Exodus 12.12, 12, 
God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. This is the God who fills the earth. And this is the God who is showing himself as the God of the Israelites, who puts in subject every other God that the Egyptians worship. Now, grab a hold of that. Whose God is bigger now? Now let's fast forward to the story with the spies. Rahab has just hid them upstairs. Joshua 2, 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, how'd she know the name of their God? Words been getting out about what went down in Egypt. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens and on earth beneath. This is a woman who spent her whole life thinking that there were just provincial gods in each town and each nation, and she has had her eyes open, speaking on behalf of the Spirit with great revelation, recognizing this God right here, he's not God of the town, he's not God of a tribe, he is God of the heavens and all the earth. God is present on earth. Oh, by the way, God knocked the walls of Jericho down, and it was done. All right, here's the third one. This one was so much fun because it was totally new to me, and it's terrifying. So God is the God of the heavens. He is God on earth, and his presence is also in hell itself. There is a myth that hell is the place away from God's presence, away from God's omnipresence. But those in hell only wish that they were outside the presence of God. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel, again, you're going to have to read to catch up with this. A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, this is the, this is the kingdom of the devil on earth, of Satan on earth. And a whole lot of people are like, I never worship Satan. Do you worship yourself? Then you're an idol. And Paul says that behind every idol is a demon. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on the forehead or in his hand, I don't think that's a computer chip because we're not going to accidentally worship the beast. This is a conscious choice for allegiance to the beast. Those who have made this allegiance, who worship the beast, listen, what happens to them? They also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of of his anger. And that person, those people will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The cup of God's wrath is found in Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, and Psalm 75. And we're going to read the Psalm. It gives us a little bit more background. Because this is not a new image. This is pulling from Old Testament imagery. Psalm 75, 7-8 says, It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of Yahweh is a cup full of foaming wine, well mixed. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs, down to the very bottom. 
So all those who are wicked, all who stand against God, his wrath will be forced down their throat, like they're being forced to drink the wine, fully mixed, fully foaming with his anger down their throats. Those who stand against God. Hell is, in fact, the place where God is present and is pouring out his wrath on all wickedness. It's there he executes righteous vengeance against Satan, his demons, and all those who have rebelled against him. Unbelievers. Uncomfortable yet? Second Thessalonians 1, 8-9 helps us to understand this just even a little bit more. The Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So I looked this up and I found out that the word presence here is completely different than the one in Revelation. And the one in Revelation means to exist in a space. The word presence here is means literally um, away from the eye, as in turning the face away. All throughout the Bible, God says that he turns his face towards his people. And it means that God turns his attention, his grace, his patience, his mercy, his favor towards his people. Hell is the place that his wrath is constantly poured out where he is now withholding his patience. There is no more mercy. There is no more grace. He has turned his face. That idea of relationship, to turns your face towards someone, is relationship, connection, love. He is turning his relationship. There's no more hope for connection with him. There is nothing left but wrath. Let's put a beautiful twist on this. Remember? Jesus on the cross, what did he say? He's quoting Psalm, what was it? I don't want to get it wrong. Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening there? Has God carved out a bubble, and this is the one vacuum in the universe where his presence is not? Has God physically left Jesus? No. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus pray? I'll read it for you. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is Jesus referring to? Is it clicking? On the cross, your savior endured the full outpouring of God's wrath. God's turning his attention away, withholding all mercy and grace with the full anger and vengeance that you and me deserved. Jesus stood in our place as our substitute and endured the intense, undiluted, full force of God's anger and judgment for us. He drank that cup for me and you. John MacArthur says, Unrepentant sinners will be banished from God's presence relationally. They will not, however, be away from his presence in the sense of his sovereignty and omnipresence. Even in hell, those in hell will suffer eternal punishment at the hands of God. God is present in the heavens. He is present on earth. and He is even present in hell. And there's a fourth one that we really 
too often quickly forget. It is that he is present with his people. He is present with us. He's transcendent, but he is also imminent, meaning he is near. He is immediate, right here, close to us. He is with his people. Isaiah 7, 14, God is foretelling Jesus is coming, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he and shall be called, or his name will be called, what? Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That is a step. That is a step of God from transcendence into our world. That is God going, I am of the heavens, and now I will be in and with my people. I will make them my holy temple. They will walk in my presence, and my presence will be with them. What does Jesus pray? May they be in you, and you in them, just as I am in you, and you are in me. Who is like our God? Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. All of God is everywhere. What does it mean that he is with his people? Is there a higher concentration of God in churches or in Christians? What do we mean when we say that God is here? Being with some people and not with others is not discussing his omnipresence. He is everywhere. But consider maybe a father whose daughter is getting a little bit older. Now, they've spent every day in the same house. They hug good morning. They spend time together. They have tickle fights. But now she's gotten older, and they start going out playing sports together. And they, maybe he takes her out to dinner, and they do daddy-daughter dates. And the father might say to his wife, I feel like my daughter and I are, what, getting closer. It's not a, it's not a, a message of proximity. It's a message of relationship. So when we're talking about God being with his people, it means that there may be people over here that God's face is not turned towards. And then there may be those who have called on him as their Lord that God is imminent with. His presence is there. His presence is over there with the wall. He doesn't have a relationship with the wall, but he has a relationship with you and with me for all those who have called on him. He had, his presence was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. His presence was with Daniel in the lion's den. His presence was, was with Hagar out in the desert. His presence was with Peter on the water. And his presence is with us. Psalm 23, 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Who is like our God? You know, there's a couple of different ways that we can feel really turmoiled. One is because life just hits hard. And another one is so beautiful. It's the turmoil that we feel when we realize that we're sinners and we come before a sovereign God and we're broken and humble before him. This verse speaks to both. This verse actually gives God's two addresses. Listen to this. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, transcendent, 
who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And with those whose spirits are contrite and humble, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. You see, Yahweh your God has two addresses. He is transcendent, but he is also imminent with his people. And he is reviving and giving courage to those who are broken from life. And he is also the one who lifts up those who have come to him humbly with contrite spirits to say, my God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. He is high and lifted up and he is with his people. There was a young man from Chicago who fell in love with a young girl from Kentucky. They were married and she moved to Chicago to be with him. And it wasn't long after that she came down with some sort of mental illness. And this illness would give her panic attacks. She would have epileptic seizures. She would even have amnesia. And her husband, in a, in a desperate attempt to try to help her, had the idea of taking her back to her hometown to familiar places. And maybe she would, something would wake up in her mind and she would kind of get her bearings again. So he took her back and they walked hand in hand through her home. And they looked at the pictures, and there were memories on every wall and around every corner. And they walked hand in hand out in the yard and through the gardens that she helped to plant. And they walked hand in hand through the streets of her town. And she remembered the fun things that she did with friends as a teenager. And nothing seemed to help. The night that they got back from Chicago, he came and he laid her down on the bed, and she fell into a deep sleep. He knew that it was a deep sleep because for months now, her sleep was restless and she'd have fits and, and cry out. But for once in a long time, she was restful and peaceful. And so he decided not to wake her up. He sat down on the bed next to her and he held her hand and he just waited. And a couple hours turned into a few hours. It turned into many hours. And soon the sun was coming up through the windows the next day. And when, when the sun came up that morning, the sunbeams touched her cheek and she began to wake up. And she looked around and she saw her husband there. She said, she called him by name and said, I've been on a long journey. Where were you? And her husband played with her hair. And in a voice that reflected his sleeplessness and coming from a heart of having spent months trying to, to reach out to her, he responded, honey, I've never left you. I have been waiting this whole time for you. Maybe sometimes we're way too tunnel visioned. Maybe we need a perspective change. We back out just a little bit and we realize maybe just like that silly picture of me as a kid that we're walking and most of the time we're pretty sure by ourselves, but we have a God who has never left us, who has been hand in hand through the good times, but through the very worst of times, through the harshest, sickest, most brutal of times who has still been with us who has been hand in hand over and over again. He goes before us. He is our rear guard and he stands at our right hand. She just wasn't aware of her husband. Her memory and her perception was incomplete. Elevate, I'm asking you. Open your eyes a little bit more tonight to God's ultimate, infinite omnipresence to realize that maybe sometimes our perspective is incomplete too. A.W. Tozer says, the omnipresence 
And here's where things get really profound for me. The omnipresence and the manifestation of the presence. So God is everywhere. But there's also times that we'll say, God was really with us in worship tonight. Man, I really just felt God's presence. The manifestation of his presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. You can have omnipresence without having his manifested presence. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it, just like that young woman, just like me as a kid. He is manifest, pay attention right now, he is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. On our part, there must be surrender to the Spirit of God. For his work, the Spirit of God's work, is to show us the Father and the Son. If we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us. And that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of God's face. He argues that the only difference between God's omnipresence and his manifest presence is just that we are aware of him. Think about a blind guy sitting on a bus bench. You sit down next to him, but until you let him know that you're there, you're not going to be able to have a conversation. So many times we go through a whole day like this, just tunnel vision, right? And we're like, and so, and we're like, we need to step back to remembering God is here. He's never left. He's, he's been there the whole time. I've been the blind man on the bench and God's going, hey, I'm here. So let's pull off, let's pull off the blinders. I love Tozer's book. It's called The Pursuit of God. Revolutionized my, my understanding of what a relationship with Jesus looked like. The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer. Tozer says all we need to do is just be aware. To turn on our attention to him. And he gives us the idea of building a discipline of awareness of him, prayerfulness of, with him throughout our day. And he says, you know what? Our attention gets, gets moved from this thing to that thing to that thing. You know, we may be working on homework, but now you're, you're trying to go out with friends. And the next time you're on the phone, you, our attention goes from here to there to there. And he says, begin with that space between our mind being here and our mind being there. And whenever our minds come out of this project, let's snap back to an awareness of his presence. Let's remember that he's there. Let's turn a prayer towards him. Let's thank him for something. Let's just be with him. And he said that the more we build this discipline of filling those spaces, the more our discipline of awareness will bleed into our activities. So soon we are doing homework with an awareness that God is with us, guiding us. Soon we're on the phone with someone remembering that he's with us. We're in the car. We're listening to the radio. Everything that we're doing, we become one with his presence. I wonder how that would affect the sin in our lives. I wonder how that would affect how purposeful we are with the people that we talk to and interact with. I wonder how that would change our hearts towards the people we don't usually get along with if we were aware of his presence throughout the day. There's so much comfort in knowing that as we pursue him, we can rest assured that we never leave his presence, that he is always guiding us and that he is always giving us his loving attention. Jesus' actual final words, Matthew 28, 20, his very final words were, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is present in the heavens. He is present on earth. He is present in hell. And he is present with his people. 
Recap. The fullness of God is simultaneously everywhere present. He is fully present in the heavens, earth, and hell. He is Emmanuel who is present, leading, and caring personally for his people. The only difference between his omnipresence and his manifest presence is our awareness, our attention to him. And we can actually grow in the discipline of walking with him throughout our day. So here's your challenge. It's not an easy challenge, but I'm asking you to try it for a day. Tomorrow, when you wake up, set a reminder on your phone, put a card on your mirror, do whatever you've got to do. I challenge you to walk in awareness for a whole day, to try to build in the discipline. Don't beat yourself up when you forget and you get sidetracked. Just as soon as you remember, go back to, oh, yeah, you're here, Lord. You're here with me. You've never left. I get distracted, but you don't. Your attention is wholly with me. I challenge you. 24 hours. Take a whole day. Snap out of something. Spend time with him as you get into the next thing. Maybe, just maybe, your discipline will start bleeding into things. Maybe you'll fall in love with him in such a new way that you want to take that to the next day and the next day and the next day. Maybe we'd be a people that walk in the manifested presence of God. And then just maybe, maybe you'll start to hear from him in a way that you never have before. Maybe when you read the Bible, suddenly it begins to come to life in a way it hasn't before. Maybe you'll start loving people in a way you haven't before. What if there's more to this relationship stuff than what you're living in now? It will begin with the practiced presence of God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are with us. There is nothing more comforting than that. That you are sovereignly in charge. Oh Lord, may we rest in your presence. Oh Lord, may we lose anxiety because we rest in your presence. May our fear about tomorrow dissipate because you're here with us now. And we know that you'll be there tomorrow too. May we be men and women of God who walk with you hearing you, being led by you, and growing daily in worship. May our view of you become so big that worship becomes our lifestyle. We love you, Lord. We give you our hearts. We give you our energy and strength. And we give you our minds. In your holy, precious, gracious, omnipresent name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.